This is the word of the Lord from Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand. He'd taken it from the tongs, he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us, and we'll get into this. Uh, Father, We talk a lot about you when we open up your word. You have introduced yourself to us in the scriptures. And we sing about you in these songs. We worship you. But we we struggle to see you in the fullness of who you are. Our personality shaped that too, Father. If we're, um, I don't know, a lot of us might focus on certain of your characteristics, your nearness, your presence, your tenderness, your patience, and we lose sight of your transcendence and that you are eternal and that you are not that you are unchanging. And some of us might see you as transcendent and eternal, but really struggle to to feel you come near to us and to be tender with us. We don't want half of you, God. We don't even want 70%. We want all of you. We want to see you as you've told us and shown us you are. And that will be a supernatural thing you will have to do. Spirit, you will have to open our eyes if we're to see you as you are. You will have to stir our hearts because we just don't have the tools to to see you all on our own or to know you. So that's our prayer. That's our needy request that we bring to you tonight. And we're delighted to bring it to you because you're good and you love to answer these prayers. So we ask it in your beloved and our beloved's name, Jesus. Amen. So it's been a couple of weeks since spring break, but um, most of you were aware, because we announced it a lot up here, 33 of us went back to Puerto Rico for uh, our RUF spring break mission trip. And I love those trips. This is the third year we've done it. I love those trips for a lot of reasons. We have awesome partners in Puerto Rico. Like we really believe in the work that they're doing and the way they're doing it. I love construction. So a week of like going and helping build a house or repair something is really fun to me. Um, I love getting to know y'all. The thing that I love the most about it though, because I've been going on trips like this for a long, long time. The thing that I've come to love the most is getting to know 
all of the different layers and dimensions of the personalities of the people who go. Um, I would have told, I mean, I knew the other 32 people who were on the team before we went. We had months and months of meetings beforehand. We got to know each other. We all knew each other's names. But some people I knew better than others. But on that trip, on a trip when you spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week together, you're literally sleeping in the same bunkhouse or prison this year. Um, we're eating all our meals together. We're driving to and from the work site every day. We're working together in the hot sun every day. We're experiencing twists and turns like 33 people's flights getting canceled at four in the morning and having to come back the next day. And these things all peel back the layers of people's personalities and their character and their attributes. And you get to see them for what they are. That's why I love these trips. Here's, and, uh, well, I didn't want to say we shower together because that would not sound great, but <laughs> just, okay, a few examples. There's example number one, Mason Porter. Good night. I've seen infinite dimensions of his personality now <laughs> that I didn't know about before. So on par. Grace Ryan, are you in the front row again? Here she is, our faithful front row with her friends up here. Grace, I, we, we knew each other a little bit before, like a few times of small talk. I know Lindsay, so we had that connection. Um, but before the trip, I was like, she's a friendly girl. She's here all the time for freshman fellowship and large group. But I also was like, because I didn't know you that well, I was like, maybe Grace is a little bit on the quieter side. I want to get to know you better. So on this trip, it's probably halfway through the week, she's sitting on the front row of the van. I'm driving. And I think we were coming back from the worksite one day, and she's been asking all these people in our van these really interesting questions the whole time. And again, remember that my, my paradigm and category for Grace is like, oh, she's a little bit of a quieter girl. Like, I'll kind of go try to ask her some questions later. So she just turns to me after she's asked them, and she says, so Ben, what's the story of your first kiss? <laughs> I don't even, Anna, I don't think I told you this. So well, that happens. Um, and I'm like, oh, bold move, Grace. Okay, we're doing this. And I was like, you really want to ask me that in front of all these people? Uh, she's like, yes. So we tell the story, and everybody else in the van does. And I didn't just get to know you better and see the different dimensions of your personality, but everybody else in that van. I now know the story of your first kiss. <laughs> I saw layers of her personality I hadn't seen before. Bennett. Um, most of y'all know Bennett, and my paradigm for Bennett before was nice, likable guy. Like, Bennett travels in a pack, all these friends that he brings. But until some conversations in the van and on the work site with Bennett, I didn't ever realize some more of the complexity and texture to his character and his personality. How much, particularly, how much work he invests in deepening his friendships with his guy friends. Um, the mature conversations that they, the honest conversations, like talking about the elephant in the room if there's a difficulty in the relationship, working through it, not doing the guy thing where you both ignore it and then a year later just move on. And I was like, man, this is amazing that you and your friends have those kind of conversations. I saw layers of his personality I had not seen before. And with Grace, with Bennett, with Mason, with all of you, it opens up new potential for relationship. Frank Manning. Frank, I knew you pretty well the year before because we did this trip together last year and really got to know each other. Um, but after another week 
with you in Puerto Rico, it clicked with me finally that Frank is the human equivalent of a golden retriever puppy. <laughs> We're like having lunch one day and there's a bunch of like six-year-olds playing red light, green light behind them and I'm thinking in my head, if Frank sees what's going on, he's gonna go play with them. And I didn't get the thought finished in my head where he like stops eating a sandwich and just runs over there and plays red light, green light with them. But he's endless energy, always happy, pees on random stuff. That's Frank. <laughs> the golden retriever. And for the record, free Frank, I was on your side with that debate. <laughs> Sorry, Timmy. <laughs> So I could sit here all night and do this with the other 30 people. We did this the last night of the trip. We all went around and we're like, with, with you, with you, with you, um, here's the pieces of your personality, your character, with what you did or who you are that we saw this week that brought a lot of life to this team. But the point of all these stories is just to point out this. You think you know somebody. You think you've got them sized up. And then you spend more time with them. And you realize there's so much more to this person that was right before my face and I didn't see it. So much more. And what draws it out? Unscripted, organic experiences happen. I mean, there's intentionality behind it. I mean, not just Grace, but other people were intentional in asking questions of each other on the trip. You know, People were putting in some work on that, but a lot of it, you couldn't have planned it. We didn't plan the flights getting canceled. We didn't plan being in the same band together or working side by side at the work site. There were just these natural experiences, unscripted, that happened, and you really get to know each other. And it, what used to be a one-dimensional person in your mind, he's the nice guy, now becomes this multi-dimensional, textured, complex, in a beautiful way, person. And you can enjoy them in whole new dimensions you couldn't enjoy them before, and you can get to know them in whole new ways you couldn't get to know them. Jen Wilkin is a ministry director at Matt Chandler's church out in Dallas. And she wrote a book called None Like Him. Basically, 10 attributes of God and why it's good that he's different than us. This is one of the quotes in that book that she said. She said, in a sense, God has a closet filled with infinite secrets about himself. But it contains only treasures, no skeletons. A closet filled with other additional dimensions of his character, his heart, his personality, his personhood. Characteristics of who he is. And when you get to encounter them or see them or know them, just like me and the other people on the trip, it opens up a broader and a deeper and a truer capacity for relationship and love and enjoyment. Does it make sense? This is a game changer because of this. The mission of a human being's life, the purpose of your life this week, is to know God. And that's a comment that applies to every person in the room. It matters not where you are with God if you even believe there is a God. And I know this is a big claim, but the, God 
your maker, says, the reason I made you and the reason I've given you this real life and this real place for this set number of years is to know me who made you and to love me and to be known by me. That's what this week is about. That's what today was for, to know God. It's what your suffering is for, your trials, your blessings, your confusions, all of it, all of it is purposed to help you know the one who made you and sustains you. A.W. Tozer, you've heard this before, I've shared it before, old theologian, he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about you. That's a radical claim. Nobody would say that. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Because, again, the whole purpose of your existence is to know God and to know what he's like, and to love him and enjoy him and to be known by him. So let's do a little sociology in this room. Many in this room, you know God. You know that you are known by God. You're alive to him and he's alive to you. He has made you alive. He's introduced himself to you. So hear me here. You've only just scratched the surface. You've only just scratched the surface. There's an infinite supply more, an infinite um, number more of his characteristics, his traits of who he is, of what he's like for you to get to know, to explore, to figure out, wow, I, had it, I thought I had him sized up. I thought I knew him. And then there's all these other dimensions. And others of us in this room tonight, you know that you don't know God and you know that he doesn't know you or you wonder if he knows you and you're here out of that curiosity or that intrigue. I kind of want to know him or I want to know if he's there or I want to be known by him. And to you, I say the same thing I said to everybody else. What Jen Wilkins said, God has a closet filled with infinite secrets about himself, just treasures, no skeletons. He's not like one of those people that you got to worry. Uh, like all of us have a, have a fear in the back of our heads as you're getting to know somebody, maybe a new boyfriend, a new girlfriend, a new roommate. You're like, when am I going to find something out about this person that's going to really disappoint me or let me down or hurt me? Not so with the true and living God. No skeletons, nothing buried. And I would add to Jen Wilkins' quote this. I would, I, I would say, maybe not so much secrets, but open secrets. Because God loves to share the secrets about who he is. He loves to share the secrets about who he is. He leaks them. He publishes them. He's told us a lot about who he is through the ages to each generation. He's pulled the secrets out in the light, which is to show us he's a God who wants to be known. You could even say this, and I know I'm using a modern human term to apply to him, but just as to help us understand it, like I, I think you could, say, you, could, you could say God is an extroverted God. He is bent towards people. He leans to, he's a talkative God. He leans toward relationship, toward befriending, toward coming to you and introducing himself to you. 
and in that way is inclined to relationship with his image bearers especially, with all of his creation though. Among himself, he's inclined to relationship. He wants to be known. And this is a good thing, right? Because it would be a terrible thing if, if everything else I said was true but not this. If I said your whole purpose and mission and goal in life, the point of your existence is to know God, but God's a tease. He loves to play hide-and-seek. He's a secret keeper. He loves to dangle the little carrots and then whip them back and pull them back right before you, you take hold of it and, and grasp it. If that's the case, this is terrible. But if he is a God who wants to be known and bends over backwards to be known, who walks the distance to your doorstep to say, this is who I am. The one that you were made to know, the one that you were made to seek, I'm here. I stand at the door and knock, Jesus says. So this is a good thing if we were made to know God and he's a God who wants to be known. So if this is all true, let's get back to the text and look at this and see what is it that Isaiah learned? What, what else did Isaiah learn about his God? A God he already knew one day at church. Uh, verse one, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord at church in the temple. Um, what's, what's this preface mean? Well, it was an anxious year in Israel. Among the people of God, it was a nervous, nerve-wracking year because King Uzziah, who had died, had been king for 52 years. With the life expectancy of people that back then, that means for most Israelites, this was the only king that they knew. And unlike Queen Elizabeth, who when she passes away, it will be a sad day in England, they'll be televised around the world, there'll be pageantry, it's not going to affect England at all, militarily, economically, culturally. Nothing's going to skip a beat. She doesn't run the country. But the king in Israel in 800 BC was everything. He protected the people. He fought for the people. He provided for the people. He was the economy. He was the culture. He was the lifeblood of the country. And he died. And he's gone. And now everybody wonders, what's next? What's around the corner? And he was a pretty good king, not perfect. Not perfect. But they wonder what's next, what's around the corner, what's coming, the future was very obscure. Any of you juniors and seniors feel this way about the future, by the way? The current people of God? And you're like, I have no idea what's next. Or I, ha I know where I'm gonna work, but I have no idea what friends are gonna be like or life's gonna be like, what's next? You can't see around the corner. Israel couldn't see around the corner. It was very anxious, very uncertain. And it was in that context that Isaiah does what Isaiah often did at the time he went to church. And of all the people that you'd think would show up at church, that day, God showed up at church. Imagine that. God comes to church. And Isaiah met him, and Isaiah saw him and encountered him. And he says, one day when I was in the temple, I learned not just that God is real. I think he believed that already. I think he knew that already, even though it was now palpably real right in front of his face. He also learned that God is not ignorable. How do you ignore this? But he learns that God is holy, holy, holy. Let me pick back up in the passage. I saw the Lord. He was high. He was exalted. And, and by the way, remember that here's, here's a man like you. Here's a person like you 
who is grasping for words to try to explain the inexplicable. It's like somebody, I don't know, they think they saw a ghost and they're just like, they don't have words to tell you or something. I mean, some of y'all just got back from Israel and you're offended when people say, how was it? And you're like, I can't tell you. I don't have words for it. And that's just a, a trip to Israel. What if you met God and somebody said, what was it like? Isaiah is reaching to the furthest lengths of the language to try to communicate what it was like. I saw the Lord. He was high. He was lifted up. He, he was sitting, apparently calm, under control, on a throne. The train of his robe, or basically, I, I guess that they, we still use that word, the train of a wedding dress, like that thing that falls. The train of his robe, it filled the temple. For those of you who went to Israel, you saw the footprint of the temple. Massive, massive structure on the tallest hill in Jerusalem. Immense. Fifty of these buildings could have fit in this place. The train of his robe filled. This is sensory overload for Isaiah. Oh, and that wasn't it, because above him were helpers, were his servants, were messengers, were seraphim, a plural of what is a seraph, of this angelic being that seems pretty terrifying. He has each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. They couldn't take in the glory that was right before them as if you were a mile from the surface of the sun and you're shielding yourself from how overpowering the energy. And God invented the sun. He just made it, let there be light. So imagine if the sun produces that much energy and you have to shield yourself from it. What is the one who made the sun like? So these seraphim are covering their faces. They can't take him all in. He's too much. He's overwhelming. And with two, they covered their feet in deference. With two, they were flying and they were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled full of his glory. And then imagine when you were a little kid and you heard those slow thunder rolls that shook the windows and your house vibrated. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. You know, this is what a lot of this is not a knock on these churches. I'm just pointing out an interesting fact. This is what a lot of churches are trying to reproduce with their fog machines and the lights. They're trying to produce an environment of worship and encounter with God. And again, I'm not, that's not me taking a cheap shot. I'm saying this is the real deal. When God shows up, this is what it's like. And Isaiah is trying to take all of this in. A few observations about these creatures, and we'll push through this. Um, these seraphim, they're not fallen, they're not infected by sin the way that you and I are, they're, which means they're not vulnerable to apathy or boredom, um, and they see God more or less as he is. We don't. There's, there's cataracts, there's obscurity between our eyes and, and this God, and that's why we're capable of growing lukewarm and cold-hearted towards him and being bored with him, which for people who see him is unthinkable, it's unimaginable, and we're able to be apathetic about him. And that's our problem, not his problem. It's a sight, it's a vision issue. The beings, the creatures that can see God aren't scrolling TikTok on the side and being like, I'll be all right back. They're not bored, they're not checking out, they're not daydreaming, they're just fully drawn into it, and they're worshiping, 
holy, holy, holy. This is the only attribute of God's that is repeated three times every time it shows up, and it's throughout Scripture. Holy, holy, holy. God is love, but you won't find love, love, love. God is sovereign. You won't find he's sovereign, he's sovereign, he's sovereign. He's holy, he's holy, he's holy. we'll, We'll define that in just a second. C.S. Lewis, I don't know the quote, but do you remember when he said, in a true worship experience, we have to talk about it. Our bodies get involved naturally. When you were watching the Natty, nobody was just sitting there like this. Oh, we won. You were whatever. I mean, I don't, what, we all saw the videos of what you were. I was too. Full-bodied experience, screaming when the Braves won the World Series. Same thing. When you are worshiping, when you see something truly overwhelming and magnificent, C.S. Lewis says, you can't just sit there. You can't go to the Grand Canyon and remain silent. You have to turn to the person next to you and say, this is amazing. You were built to be a worshiper, and your body was built to worship. And same with these creatures. They were built to worship too, and they're overwhelmed. They can't take, it. They can't take him in. And so there's, they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they say that God is holy. So we've, we've talked about this word from time to time because it comes up a lot in Scripture. And in the past and now, we've kind of defined this as holy literally means separated or set aside, cut, cut off, off on its own. In other words, one of a kind, unmatched, unequaled, unparalleled, unprecedented, in a league of his own. It's not that God is smarter than anybody else or wiser or more loving or more beautiful. He he is wisdom in its most perfect purity. He is love. He is beauty. And when we say, when we talk about God's holiness, we're talking about, it's like if you took every color in the color wheel and put it on top, whatever color results, that's holiness. When you take all of who God is, all of his attributes, his mercy, his love, his justice, his wrath, his compassion, and you put it all together, the overlap is called holy. He is fundamentally different in the most unimaginably magnificent way. And these creatures can't get enough of him. And they say, you're one of a kind, you're unequaled, there's no one like you, only you, only you. Nobody comes close to you. They're loving him. They're worshiping him. At its best, at its best, a marriage, a husband and a wife will talk like this to each other on the best of the best days. And it's just a tiny little glimmer of what all of us were built to be and how we were built to experience God. Just heaping praise because we can't get enough of him. Another aside, People who have truly encountered the true God, it, 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 was, it has not been a casual experience for them. It's not a, hey, buddy, hey, God. They are undone. I don't have time to go through all of the different passages, but you know, Job, when Job, I mean, people have described this as having a life quake, that the tectonic plates of your life shake like a 9.0 earthquake, and it unsettles you, it rattles you. Job says, after um, he has been asking God all these questions, and God patiently listens, and then God responds to him, and he says, Job, where were you 
when I set the boundaries of the waters? Where were you when I taught the birds how to search for their food? Where were you when I hung the stars in the sky, Job? And Job hears this onslaught of just God's holiness and his supremacy, and Job gets smaller and smaller, and God's not shaming Job. God is freeing Job by reminding him who's in control. Job responds and says this. Job has truly encountered God, and he says, he says, um, my ears had heard of you, God, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Mary had encountered an angel, not God himself, but an angel. She said, Mary, you have favor in God's eyes, and in you is the Son of God who will be born. And the angel had to tell her, Mary, don't be afraid, which presumes she was terrified just by a messenger of God's. Peter in Luke 8 sees um, Jesus, they get back from a day of fishing, they catch nothing in the Sea of Galilee. Jesus sends them back out, and he says, go throw out your nets again. And these commercial fishermen are looking at this carpenter and saying, what do you know about fishing? But he says, just go do it. And they haul in so much fish, the boat starts to sink. And Peter, who has just encountered Jesus in his glory and in his holiness, says, go away from me, Lord. I'm a, I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished. Saul encounters the resurrected Jesus, and he goes blind. As Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why have you persecuted my church? He saw Jesus in his glory, and he fell down. And Isaiah says, woe is me, which is Hebrew for I'm screwed. I'm doomed. I'm damned. I'm condemned. I'm undone. I'm unglued. I'm in danger here. There's no complaining, there's no questioning. And I, please don't hear me dismissing the legitimacy of a lot of these questions. God listens to our questions. But in this moment, there's no, there's no uh, Isaiah saying, well, God, I got a few questions to ask with you. I got a few bones to pick with you. Job didn't do that. Nobody who's truly in the presence of God has done that because proportions are set back to their appropriate size of little us and big him. So questioning is over, complaining is over, grumbling is owner, over, games are over, mounds are shut, excuses are done, and we sit there and we shake before this holy God, a life shake, a life quake. What effect does this rattling that God's holiness has on us, what effect does it have? Well, I already said it, but Job says, woe is me. Woe is me. And that leads him to say, I'm a man of unclean lips. He says down in verse 5 in the next couple of verses after that, I cried, I'm ruined. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Um, What is he talking about? Isaiah if we did a poll and we said, who do you think, and we weren't being cheesy about it, but honestly, who do you respect the most in RUF? Who do you think is the most godly and humble and giving and holy? And let's say it was, a, it was a slam dunk. Everybody voted for the same person. We're like, yeah, she's amazing. That's like what Isaiah is like. He's a prophet. He's a holy man. And he's in the presence of God and he's saying, I'm not holy. I'm ruined. I'm unclean. And the people I come from, they're unclean too. What is, what's happening here? 
How, how is that happening? Um, I was trying to think of an example for this, and I, th- I think it's compare, he's, when you compare yourself to God, you see yourself as you actually are. Hear that, please. You never know who you really are until you've compared yourself to the God who made you. Until, until you have encountered God and compared yourself to him, you're in the dark about who you really are. Here's a human example. This holds true even at a human peer-to-peer level. Um, have, you ever, have you ever thought, man, I, not in a proud way, you just thought, I'm a loving person, I'm a good friend, people like me. But then you have a friend come along who really is a good friend. And then by comparison, you're like, I'm not a good friend. I'll be specific. Last week, uh, and w- with, with my wife, I've seen this for 10 years of marriage with Anna, and I saw it with a lot of y'all last year. I've, I think of myself as a tender, gentle person who can empathize and wants to enter into other people's grief, but when it, when it happens, when we experienced grief last week, and I saw the way that some of y'all responded, literally getting in your cars, driving to people's houses to comfort them, literally going and grieving with families, literally checking in on each other every day. And as I watch you, I'm thinking, I don't know the first thing about grieving or empathy. Isaiah stands before the true and living holy God and immediately in a similar way says, I'm not holy, I'm not clean. Does that make sense? It even holds true to, to people. So why does he say I'm a man of unclean lips? Because you would have expected a prophet to say I'm a man of an unclean heart. Or I'm an unclean person or I'm a sinful person. But he says this weird phrase, I'm a man of unclean lips. Why lips? Because he's a prophet. He's a professional speaker. He's a preacher. He talks for a living. He delivers messages from God to the people of God. His lips are the best thing he has going for him. It's his strongest point, his greatest gift, his most powerful asset, his best attribute. Isaiah is is not just saying, and this is so significant, in the presence of God, Isaiah is not just saying, Lord, I'm sinful, I did some bad things, I looked at stuff this week I shouldn't have looked at, I gossiped about a friend I shouldn't have gossiped about. It's not what he says. He says, my my best is unclean. My righteousness is filthy. It's not enough. The Puritans always used to say, a true Christian doesn't just repent of her sin, but also of her righteousness. Tim Keller says a couple of things about this that helped me. He said, to come to God, all you need is nothing. All you need is need. But most people don't have that when they come to God. They come with their repentance and their righteousness. Lord, I'm sorry about these things. I did it again. I shouldn't have. I really want to change. Please forgive me. But, we, but we're never talking to God about what's best about us, our righteousness. Lord, I think of myself as a good friend, but I'm a people pleaser. I manipulate people with my kindness. Or... Um, I've been faithful in reading the Bible, but my heart hadn't been in it 90% of the time. I don't love you. I don't want you. I do it out of habit. Are you ever finding yourself repenting in humility of your, of your best, of your righteousness, 
of where you think it's going well. A.W. Tozer added to this, until a person sees a vision of God high and lifted up, there will be no woe and no burden, no sense of our sin. Low views of God destroy the gospel for all who hold those low views. Keller adds, we don't just repent of the seriousness of our sin, but the sin of our seriousness. Do you get what they're saying? When in the presence of this holy God, this blazing sun, he exposes the infirmities and the impurities and lowers us down, and we see God for who he really is, and we see us for who we really are. Holiness exposes us. God's holy, the holy God exposes us. He rattles us, he exposes us, and he heals us. And this is where we end. God's holiness ex- it heals us. And this is, not, this is not what we would expect. It's, I don't think it's what Isaiah would have expected in this moment. Read down with me, verse 6, verse 7. Then, I thought I was an observer. And it's like when you're at a show and you, you're, the, you're that person who hates getting called on stage. And like the comic or whoever is there is like, you, come up here. Let me make fun of you in front of the crowd. He thought he was an observer, but now he's a participant. This six-winged seraph is now, has gone over to the altar, the place where sacrifices for sin happen, where the fires of God's judgment are on full display. And he picks up with tongs this huge glowing coal, and he now flies towards Isaiah. And you got to be wondering what's going through Isaiah's head as he comes towards him. When he, and then, with it, with this ember, he touched my mouth. Again, a specific place of Isaiah's body. And he says, see, this has touched your lips. And your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Hear this. I know this has sounded like unsettling news at points, That was the point. God's holiness unsettles. It shakes us to our foundations. It gets our attention. He demands our attention. But when God moves near to you, it is with healing. In this day and age, in this age of redemption, when God comes near to you, it is with healing in his hands, not with judgment. Your sin is taken away. Your, your, sorry, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. This angel, this messenger, this servant of God, this servant who carries out the deepest desires of the Father's heart, does the Father's bidding and provides relief for this scared and shaking Isaiah. I have two stories I want to end with. One is from the Bible. One is from home alone. I couldn't think of anything else. Zechariah chapter 3. This was a prophet who came about 400 years after Isaiah. There's another moment that happens in the throne room of the true and living God who is holy. And there's another person present in that episode, along with an angel and the Lord. And it's Satan who's the accuser. And the, the high priest of that day, Joshua, is standing there as well before the throne in the same situation as Isaiah fully seen, fully exposed, whoa, I'm a man of unclean lips, and the accuser is saying, you're dang right he's a man of unclean lips. You're dang right she's a fraud. Let me tell you about last summer. And let me tell you about how last summer fit into every other summer of her life. 
and he's there just ripping you apart. And the worst thing about it is you know it's true. Somebody is seeing you for who you are and they're judging you for it, condemning you for it. And that's what Satan is doing in Zechariah 3 to the high priest Joshua. But the Lord, of all people who stands up and starts defending Joshua, the Lord stands up and says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O accuser. In other words, sit down and shut up. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with, clothed with filthy garments. Woe on the man of unclean lips. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove his filthy garments. And to him, to Joshua, he said, behold, I have taken away your iniquity and I will clothe you with pure clothing. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they clothed him with garments and the angel of the Lord was standing by. I just told you when God comes near in your shaky, rattly moments, when you finally deal with him, listen to him, look at him, pay attention to him, and he shows you who he is, it will rattle you. And in that moment, you'll be scared. Is he going to crush me? Is he going to accuse me? Is he going to judge me? Is he going to condemn me? What he's going to do is heal you. What he's going to do is clean you. Atone for your sins. Take the thing away from you that nobody, no doctor, no therapist, no counselor can get their hands on but he can. Home alone is where we end. You remember old man Marley? He's woven throughout the movie. Um, Buzz and Kevin and all of them are up in the room at the beginning of the movie and they're looking out and Buzz is saying, that's old man Marley, have you heard about him? And he's the old guy with the, with the snow shovel and he's got the big old trash can that he clanks around filled with salt. He's salting the sidewalks. And he says, rumor has it, he murdered his wife and he put her in the trash can full of salt to get rid of her. And, and Kevin is just eyes as wide as plates, and he's terrified. And throughout the rest of the movie, every time he sees him, he's just rattled to the core. So the movie goes on. Kevin does all his tricks and all of his traps to get Marv and Harry out of his house. And you think he's, you think he's succeeded, and he runs to the neighbor's house, and he's about to, he, he calls 911. He says, I want to report, whatever, a robbery or whatever, um, at this address, and... Marv and Harry show up. They come up out of the basement and they turn the phone off and they crush the phone and Kevin is sitting there and he's cornered and he's trapped and he knows it's all over. And then old man Marley comes in and he sees this man who up to this point has terrified him and he thinks is a murderer and he comes up and he gets his snow shovel and he rears back with it and Kevin's looking at him like, now I got three people trying to kill me and he comes down with it. And he knocks out the two bad guys, the wet bandits, and Kevin is there. I want you to have that image in your head, those of you who know God and those of you who don't, of what it's like to get near to a God that you still don't quite well know. And you wonder and you fear, is he going to smash me like he could? Or is he going to kill what's killing me? Is he going to attack what's attacking me to free me? This holy God is pure in his mercy too and in his forgiveness. Let's pray. Lord God, you can do things we can't do. With us, it is impossible. With you, all things are possible, including get of ri getting rid of guilt and sin that we cannot get rid of. Some of us don't know you. We don't know how to know you. We don't know if we know you. And 
our deepest hope and the good news of the gospel is that you are not dependent on our strength. You are separate than us. And you can heal us even when we don't know how to ask for it. I pray that my friends, me included, all of us, would flee to you, would know ourselves as we know you, and would see and know your mercy again in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.